following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Thank you all for being here. Welcome if you're online. hope that you're able to find your way quickly to the live stream. I realized, by the way, if you were watching on uh, Sunday night that I had forgotten to post the notes there. Post if forgot to post the notes. So uh, they are there now from Sunday night, but you don't have the uh, update for this evening, although it is also from Matthew chapter 6. That will make it probably to the website Sunday night as I expand these notes further and uh, perhaps, we'll see, complete our exposition of Matthew chapter 6. So if you could turn there in your Bibles tonight and follow along as we study the Word. We're in the section from verses 19 through 34. We saw last Sunday night about laying up for ourselves treasures on earth and the problems with those treasures, the insecurity of those treasures, and then we saw about the security of heavenly treasures. Then we asked ourselves the question, is it legal, could I say, although we don't have a legalistic religion, but is it uh, lawful before God to be saving finances uh, for time to come? And the issue, the answer to that I gave is yes, it is. Uh, at a prudent level, it is uh, to be able to meet needs that will come in the future and so on. And so we answered that question, and I'm sure that raised some other things uh, in your minds about uh, finances, but our job is not really to, our intention really is not really to get into that right now. So we will not. Um, Now, we turn our attention to verse 22, remembering the principles of before, where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. In verse 22, it says, the lamp of the body is the eye, or to say it in the other way around, like some translations do, the eye is the lamp of the body. It's equivalent. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore that light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So the Lord uses a real economy of words here to express something, and we want to just Think about it for a moment. What is it? There are a couple different interpretations of this section. One is more maybe um, externally focused, and one is internally focused. I take more of the internally focused view, and I'll try to help you understand what I'm thinking here. When it says the lamp of the body is the eye, that has often mystified me to some extent over the years when I read. What, What does it mean, the lamp of the body is the eye? You know, you conjure up images of, you know, lamps with nice lampshades. Uh, but that's not actually what they would have thought of, obviously. That's anachronistic because they didn't have those. Uh, with electricity, they would have a little oil lamp or something that would give them some light uh, at much greater cost than what we have to, to, to use today to make a lot of light. Uh, maybe because of where I'm situated in our Western culture with science education and the like, um, you know, that has an effect in that I think of the eye as a, 
a marvelously designed converter device from electromagnetic radiation to, uh, that comes into the eye by way of the photons. They hit the rods and the cones and present an image to the back of the eye and the, the brain processes on that for a while and, and uh, figures out what it's looking at. But that's not obviously, obviously not how Jesus is looking at this thing here, uh, despite the fact that he was the designer of that eye. And you recall he even, it seems, redesigned a man's eye or eyes with mud, starting from very scratch and uh, creating a fresh set of eyes for that man as he, as he healed him. But as I think about it now, it does not seem too complicated. Uh, close your eyes for a second. What do you see? Darkness, right? Darkness. I'm not saying, oh, I can see there's light there, you know. You know what I mean, okay? You're seeing darkness. Could you almost be convinced that the insides of you are dark because no light is coming in? The windows are closed, no light. If you almost can think about it that way, like when my eyes are open, light is flooding in to me. When they're closed, you know, the shutters are closed, the shades are closed, they're room darkening shades I can't see, but it's not just that I can't see, it's like there's no light coming in. You don't feel that light coming in to you. Light floods in when you open your eyes after a man or speaking. Now, a good eye, that is a functioning eye, will let light in. A bad eye is an eye that doesn't function like that of a completely blind person. No light is allowed in, and thus your whole body is full of darkness. I hope that you might have a level of compassion on those who are blind because they are missing one-fifth of their senses, and that one I think almost more important than some of the others, that they exist in darkness, in darkness. Now, like the physical organ of sight is your spiritual vision. I think the Lord is referring to the physical organ here in the first part of this section. The lamp of the body is the eye. If the eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. Okay, lesser, the lesser illustration is the physical. The greater reality that's pointed to by the lesser illustration is that spiritual vision, which if it's blind, I'm sure you're conjuring up ideas already about blindness and how the Lord taught about spiritual blindness. The Lord exclaims that if the spiritual vision you have inside of you is darkness, that darkness is great because it comes from a bad eye and there seems to be no way to fix it. This is what it means when it says, if that light in you is, and I say actually, darkness. You know, the light... If the light inside of you is actually darkness, how great is that darkness? It's a much worse darkness than if you're blind or your eyes are shut or you have a blindfold over you. Much worse. How great is that darkness? And so the, the control center for the vision originates from inside instead of outside. This is something like, you know, your speech comes from your heart while your vision in a sense, also comes from inside, doesn't it? What you see, how you look at life, what you look at. The spiritual eye is related to the immaterial aspects of our being, our conscience and our heart, our spiritual vision. 
darkness ought to be a bother to us. Think about that. Does darkness bother your conscience? Like darkness would bother you if you were, your eyes were closed and you had to bump your way out of the church building to go home? Darkness should bother us in our consciences. But if we are full of darkness, the conscience may not be able to discern right from wrong as it once was able to or was designed to be. Now, this in turn, the spiritual darkness that the Lord is talking about here, if we have it, affects how we fill our eyes from the outside. So if we have internal darkness, we seek to fill our eyes with that which satisfies that internal darkness or conforms to that internal darkness. And we will be bringing even more darkness in. Now, I'm not talking about electromagnetic radiation. I'm talking about sin as darkness. If we have darkness within, we will seek to see those things through the literal eye, which have to do with darkness. On top of that, Satan parades about like an angel of light. But what is he really? He's actually a purveyor of darkness. It's kind of hard to imagine, but you could imagine him almost like a, a black hole going around. He's not emanating light. He's sucking it in and preventing you from actually seeing the light or participating in any things that are light. Sometimes he uses things that seem, follow my play on words here, things that seem enlightening. Maybe like the enlightenment, <laughs> some aspects of that. But sometimes he uses those enlightening things, they so seem, but they're actually endarkening, not enlightening things. So that, those things that are outside appeal to us through our eyes, the lamp, and if our insides are directing our eyes to think and look and desire things that are dark, it just adds to that darkness. How great is that darkness that's within us? But if we have the light of life inside of us, then we will turn our eyes toward things that will lighten our lives even further. All right, that's the lamp. I told Daniel I'd be talking about lamps today. You got it now, Daniel? How about you, David? Got it? All right. Um, all right, verse 24. We uh, shift a little bit again, but not really because we're still talking about the laying up treasures in heaven, and these things are all kind of interconnected with each other. I mean, think about how you look at riches. Think about how you look at uh, the things of the world and evaluate them on the basis of are they going to help my desire to lay up treasures on earth or lay up treasures in heaven. And here, the Lord gives a very simple, straightforward teaching. I'll read the verse first. It says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. God and the older translations have mammon. Even the New King James translated in the 1980s has that. It's unfortunate. It should have uh, updated that 
translation because mammon doesn't mean anything in modern English. It's money. The fact is, that last sentence is the, is the truth. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Now, if you believe that you can serve both God and money, God and wealth, God and riches, then you're not being more clever than God. You're not, you haven't figured out a new way to do it. What you're doing is you're directly contradicting the teachings of Jesus. So humble yourself and recognize, well, like the rich young ruler, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? I, I want to keep all this stuff here. Don't tell me about that, but what can I do? What can I add on to serve God? I can have two masters, two great delights in my life, one in God and one in my wealth. So you can't believe contrary to these words. These are just, this is a spiritual axiom, a, a life truth in the universe. The two masters, of course, are assumed to be incompatible in some fundamental way. It's not like a situation when you're at work and you have a supervisor and your supervisor has a supervisor. Well, you could say, well, I have two bosses, kind of. Like when this one's out of town, then this one takes over. But they're in concert with one another, I hope, <laughs> I presume. The, the top boss wants the second boss to run your life uh, well and, uh, and not be um, you know, causing you to go astray or do things that are not in line with what the company mission is and all of that. The same kind of thing. I mean, you know, we could say, well, my master is Jesus and my Lord is God the Father. They're not in competition with each other. That's not what the principle is talking about here. Um, it comes down to, uh, you know, the issue or situation, rather, when you have to choose between what one wants and what the other wants. When you have to choose who your devotion and service go to, either one or the other. If you try to straddle the fence, the Lord says, in the case of two competing, you know, God and the world. The love of the Father means you don't have the love of the world. If you love the world, and the love of the Father doesn't exist in you, First John 2, roundabout verse 15, teaches us that principle. And so you have the two, the two masters that are competing with each other. If you try to straddle the fence, love both of them, you're actually going to be loving one and hating the other. Or, I think probably more likely over the course of time, you will end up discarding the facade altogether about, love, about loving both, and you'll just go all, all in for money and just forget about God, right? You know, you'll, maybe you'll try to maintain that for a while, that two-faced kind of thing, but eventually you just can't keep it up and you probably end up dropping God, even though God wasn't really your boss, as it were, in the first place, but you'll drop the facade, the hypocrisy, the, the mask of that. So you cannot serve God and money. So you have to choose between incompatible masters, whether they're deities or they are uh, our true God and, and money and other things that are in competition with God, you have to choose. And 
that's in, in essence the, the, the core of what it means to repent and turn away from sinful attractions, sinful motivations, sinful values, sinful things in the world. You turn away from those things in repentance, and then your life looks like what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. In this case, that your master is God. And so salvation really is a, a master transference uh, issue. Uh, when somebody says, you know, well, you can take Jesus as Savior, but you don't have to worry about Lord, um, they really miss the whole point of the gospel because the need for salvation comes from the fact that you have offended the King of Kings. You cannot say, well, I'll take the Savior, but I'm not going to take him as king because that's still offending the king, isn't it? It's saying I'm not going to have him. He, he's not going to really have me. I'll take the bennies, you know, s- salvation, free, freedom from guilt and forgiveness, but I don't want any of the rest of the things that come along with that. That is very displeasing to God. We do have obligations to God, even though those obligations do not earn us salvation, right? After we're saved, then we have very reasonable service that we should offer to our God, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. All right, so now we're going to move to the uh, last section of chapter 6, and uh, I think we shall not reach the end of this section, given the time we have, we'll see, Um, but we'll reach the end of my notes anyway, so... And I've just titled this subsection under the heading of worry. Worry. Uh, Why? Because Jesus said in verse 25, Therefore I say to you, you know, therefore, and in light of what we've talked about, two masters laying up treasures on, on earth and heaven and all that, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about your life. Now, as far as a definition Somebody asked me just a few days ago, what is worry? What is, what is it all about? How do you define it? Well, I'm, I'm going to lump together in my definition, and then this is, if you look it up in the dictionary, you'll kind of see this. Ideas like worry, fear, anxiety, and stress. All of those words kind of in this realm of idea. One symptom, if not a definition of worry, is that your mind is consumed with some issue, some difficulty, some problem. And, uh, you know, worry and fear and anxiety and stress are all interconnected. Now, when I talk about fear, I'm not talking about the kind of fear like, you know, there's an intruder in your home in the middle of the night kind of fear. Yes, that's fear, but that's not this kind of fear. This kind of fear is a little bit different. If you have that kind of fear, why, you know, call the authorities or take your baseball bat and clobber him, okay? Um, But uh, so this is a different kind of, we're not talking about the, and we're not talking about the thing that you worry about. You know, you might say, uh, my worry is, and fill in the blank, whatever the thing is that you're worried about. We're not talking about it in terms of the, the object of your worry. We're really talking about the feeling of angst that you have when there is some kind of problem. 
I'm also excluding from this definition the matter of legitimate concern. Okay, there's concern and there's worry. I hope you know you can kind of see there is a distinction there. A concern prompts you to prayer and action. It doesn't panic you. A worry would be something that more causes a kind of a panic response or a light panic response, maybe I could say. But in terms of concern, if you can do anything, uh, you know, then do some action to work on or resolve that concern. One of the examples I saw in the um, dictionary when I was looking it up was, um, I am worried about grandma's health, meaning I'm concerned about grandma's health. Now, you can take that in a concern direction, or you can take it farther and go into a worry direction. Um, but if it's concern, really, for grandma's health, you might help her to do something about it, or you, may, if you can't help her, then you might pray with her and for her about it. It's an area of concern, not an area of, of anxiety. So what is anxiety then? Uh, worry, stress, fear. It's a feeling of loss of control. It can be from something that has already happened or something that you speculate may happen. It's a bad feeling about the past or the present or the future. It happens when you, when you try to import things that are under God's authority and place them under your own authority. Think about, you know, if you think about a thing, whatever that thing is that's, that's causing you worry, who's in charge of that thing? Okay, is it in your box or is it in God's box? And sometimes we take things in God's box and we put them in ours and we think we're going to solve them. And that causes us worry, perhaps because they're too big for us and it's just too much of a load on us. Now, let me give you five things that worry demonstrates, and then we will close for the evening. Five things that worry demonstrates. The Lord says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? You know, worry never does anything. Well, it kind of wears you down. It certainly doesn't wear you up, <laughs> give you a lengthier life or a, a taller stature. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, this is the argument from lesser to greater, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry. There he says it again. Do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. And what is the world's problem? Half the time, we're worrying about things. The Lord spent, what, 10 verses here telling us not to worry, three times or so. Well, the whole chapter, the whole section really is. Do not worry, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. He's talking about unbelievers, pagans. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. You see, their priority is though is that. Our priority as believing people, as people who have repented, is to seek something higher than that. Seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness. You know, pray thy kingdom come, Matthew 6, 9, and 10. Uh, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. There it is again, do not worry. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Worry shows that, number one, your priorities are wrong. You assign a wrong level of importance to the thing that you are worrying about. And maybe that relates to the fact that you have a desire, a preeminent desire for personal comfort. And the thing that you're worried about is potentially going to cause you discomfort. Instead of having a preeminent desire for the glory of God, your desire is for yourself. Well, there is a mismatch of priorities there, isn't there? So worry shows that could be your priorities are wrong. Worry shows, secondly, that your character may need some development. I think it does show your character needs development. Your character includes your faith. If you are a person who trusts the Lord, your worry meter will show by having a very low level. But if you do not trust in the Lord, but trust in yourself or in others, your worry meter will be higher. And this is true even for very what we would consider very deep, difficult problems that you might have. Um, you know, uh, pro- family problems, serious health problems, and all of these things. What's more important than your serious health problem? The glory of God. Uh, even, even short of the glory of God, what's more important than your serious health problem? Your sanctification, your faith, your character, your priorities, your values. All of those things are more important than that. Number three, worry shows that theology has not been properly applied in your life. You're not remembering that God is sovereign. There are things that are outside of your control. Now, if that's the case, then in a sense, you can just forget about them. You can't control what everybody else does. You can't control what they do to you, to a large extent. You can't control how they think. Uh, you can't control, you know, the weather. Even though some people think they can. You can't control the things that only God can control. If there are things, however, that are in your purview... You know that word, purview, in your scope of influence, P-U-R-V-I-E-W, purview. If there are things in your scope of influence and you can do something about them, then go ahead and do that. Maybe you're worrying about areas where God has already delegated to you the responsibility and authority to make changes. So quit worrying and do something about it. You worried that Somebody may have been offended by something you said. Well, make it right with them. You worried that somebody doesn't know the Lord? You have a mouth. Tell them. You know, instead of being anxious, do something. But in those cases where you cannot, then your theology has to be applied. You say, well, God's in charge. Those are, those are God's issues, not mine. So I'm not going to try to take them away from God. In fact, I'll cast my burdens on the Lord and show that I'm humble before God about those. So 
Worry shows there are wrong priorities, character needing development, theology has not been properly applied. Number four, worry shows that our contentment needs a tune-up. Our contentment needs a tune-up. What are the kinds of things that the Lord talked about here? Food, clothing, beverage. You know, maybe we could add shelter in there in the context of our culture, deep winters that we have. It's a little hard to live outside. Okay, that'd be kind of clothing, if you will. Recognize when your real needs are met. You know, don't worry that you don't have, you know, a closet full of clothes when you have enough. Don't worry that you don't have, you know, the perfect organic health food because you do have food. Don't worry that you, you know, don't have all the beverages in your refrigerator that you'd like because you have water, you know. Um, What else can we say? You know, don't worry about your life, Uh, you know, how tall you are, how short you are, how many hairs there are on your head, uh, and all those things. God will take care of you, but it may be that, you you, you know, you're worried about poverty, but you don't have poverty. There are people that are poor. I'm not looking at any of them right now, okay? I mean, if somebody literally has rags on their body and that's all they have for clothing, that, we're talking about a need that should be met by their neighbors, by their church. But if they have clothing, they have food, they have beverage, they have a place to put their head, well, they have what they need. They have what God has estimated to be a need even though we don't think that's enough. You know, they don't have, well, they don't have uh, health care. You know, they don't have, uh, you know, a decent set of wheels. They don't have a college education. Well, the Bible doesn't say that those are needs that are going to be met by, by God's provision. They're not here. So our contentment might need a tune-up. Worry also shows, and this I find, this perhaps the... Um, Maybe this is the easiest one to solve. I don't know. Uh, Worry shows that our speculation is running rampant. Sometimes worry becomes or comes because of a thing that's happened in the past or a thing that's happening to you presently. And, you know, we understand that. But other times, however, worry is caused by something that might happen in the future. You know, they might do this, or that might happen. I mean, the world may be destroyed by tsunamis because of climate change, or so-and-so you know, might do something that is not nice to me or something. Worry is caused by things that might happen in the future, and our minds are very skilled at thinking up the worst things that could happen. And if it's not that worst thing that could happen, that's only because something even worse than that's going to happen, (laughs) right? Our minds are super skilled at pondering on and speculating about those things. So how do you solve and worry in that case? You have to stop speculating. I just counseled somebody that just now. They were thinking that something terrible was going to happen and their life was going to be upended. And uh, I said, well, you have to wait and see. What's going to, in fact, it seemed to me from the data that I had that their concern 
sorry, their worry, was unfounded. It was just mere total speculation. Nothing to do with reality. So what I encourage them to do is wait until you get the facts. Don't answer the matter before you hear it. So-and-so might not actually want to talk to you to you know, tell you off. Maybe they want to tell you, you know, some nice thing. And you just have some bad you know, thought in your mind about what they want to say or something. And so worry is completely misplaced because it's based, in that case, on speculation of something that's not true. You're telling yourself a lie, something you cannot know whether it's true or not. Even if it is true, it's not worth worrying about because it's a speculation. Or in other words, even if it ends up being you know, the worst thing. So that's what worry does uh, show about us. And so uh, the useful thing, I think, about it is when we run into it, and let's face it, all of us run into it, it shows, kind of points out where we can tune up our priorities, help our character to be developed well, to... Uh, make sure our contentment is right, to make sure we're not speculating, and to make sure that we've applied our theology correctly. So a good thing God can do out of allowing you to fall into worry is to teach you these things and help you to remember, hmm, maybe I need to get my priorities right. Maybe I need to remember God's in charge, not me, and, and let, him, let him run with it. I don't have to run with it. I can't run with it. It's too heavy. And, uh, and those sorts of things. So worry. Do not worry, the Lord says. Well, we'll try to look at that a little bit more, uh, God willing, on Sunday night if uh, the Lord tarries that long. And uh, until then, I say good night. Don't worry. And uh, enjoy the Lord and his goodness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we could have a good time of prayer earlier this evening with our church family both online and uh, on the phone, rather, and, uh, and here at the church. God in heaven, we pray that you would help us to not try to retain two masters. Help us, Lord, to uh, check our lamps, make sure they're letting in a lot of light and not a lot of darkness. And Lord, I pray that you would help us not to worry, because worry is sin, in direct contradiction to what our Lord teaches us here. It's not one of those little sins that we can just say, well, you know, we all worry. But God, we know that it shows a very a low view of God and a high view of self. And we've been taught in Scripture to have a low view of self and a high view of God. So worry really reverses those, and I pray that you'd help us. With that, help us each one now to rest well tonight. For our sister who has uh, very deep health problems, may she rest soundly through the night tonight. Uh, two of our sisters, in fact, have treatments and surgeries and things on their horizons. We remember them and pray that you would help them to rest with great uh, satisfaction that, God, you have everything under your hand. And that is a great, a great blessing. Uh, Dad has it under control, our Abba Father, and we thank you that we can trust you that way. In Jesus' name, amen.